Well, if you haven't already, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, starting in uh, uh, verse 8 will be our text this morning. And as you turn there, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can uh, grab that pew Bible in the pew rack in front of you, and you'll find our passage on page 810, page 810. And we're going to look under the heading, uh, Let's Get Real. And uh, Jesus has been challenging us to turn our attitudes upside down. As we've been focusing in on these eight character qualities that each believer and follower of Jesus Christ is called to have. And Jesus starts his Sermon on the Mount with these eight character qualities for all Christians. And he's called his followers to see ourselves through God's eyes, that we would be poor in spirit, that we would mourn over our sin, that we would hunger and thirst for the righteousness that God has. And as we do that, that we would show mercy uh, to those uh, around us. And in a couple weeks, these attitudes uh, will be tried and they'll be tested as we will soon pivot from attitudes to actions that Jesus calls us to that Jesus calls each of his followers to act upon and live out on a daily basis, no matter the circumstances of life. Now, Jesus has started this sermon on these Beatitudes because he doesn't uh, want us to think that we just need to do things. And if we just do enough good things, then we'll be good. You see, Jesus wants us to understand that if he is not ruling our attitudes, he will never rule our actions. And some of you right now are wondering why you do the very things that you do. You're struggling with sin, and you're wondering, why in the world am I struggling with these things? Why in the world does temptation seem to befall me at every uh, turn of the corner? And the answer is, for many of us, is that we have not changed our attitudes with regards to our relationship with God. And as a result, our actions find themselves flawed. And it's because of this that Jesus turns our attention now to being pure in heart. This attitude of being pure in heart first begins with our relationship with God, and then it leads to our relationship with our fellow man, but it will not be easy. To be pure in heart, to, to know that, if you've been around church for any amount of time, you know that we've got some handicaps along the way. We are sinners, and, and so before we throw this kingdom attitude by the wayside, we need to remember that it is through this pursuit of purity that Jesus is going to talk about that you and I have a wonderful privilege, and that privilege is to see God. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, then one of the greatest and grandest pursuits in all this world is to see God. And so if we desire that, then God says that there's a way to go about that. And that way of seeing God and experience his presence in this world and in the life to come is to pursue a life of purity. So if you want to see God this morning, I want to invite you Uh, to look at our passage this morning. Let's go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word, and then we will get into our text this morning. I'm going to start uh, in verse 1 to give us a context of where we've been, and then we will uh, hit the verse that uh, we're focused on today. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And Jesus opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they 
shall see God. Let me read that again. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, and Lord, we want to see you this morning. Lord, we know if we don't see you, we are without hope. Lord, these stories of sickness and illness and even death, Lord, would leave us hopeless if we did not know that apart from this life and all of its struggles is a life in eternity with you. When we will gaze upon the beauty of the one and only true God. And Lord, that we would embrace that hope. But Lord, to embrace that hope, we are called to live upright and pure lives. And so Lord, teach us about this purity this morning. Lord, I pray that I would get out of the way because I am an impure person. And Lord, I have no right to stand and speak about such things. But Lord, I'm glad that the author of this sermon is not a man, but is the Son of God. And so Lord, I thank you that you uh, came and, and were one of us and lived a life of purity so that you could preach on a topic such as purity so that we may see you in all of your radiance and beauty. In Christ's name we pray, amen and amen. You may be seated. As we get into Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, I'm going to have you stick your finger there for a moment and turn a page over to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to fast forward to the last uh, phrases of this uh, Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to come to the response. What would the scorecard say about Jesus in this sermon? And then it finishes up in Matthew chapter 7, uh, verses 28 and 29. And notice what it says. When Jesus finished these sayings, when he finished his sermon, it says the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And we're going to get to this in in the months to come. In fact, we'll hit this passage of Scripture around the month of May. So if you're starting to feel chilly, just think about the end of the Sermon on the Mount and things will warm up for you. But as a result of what Jesus is articulating to the people with regards to the Sermon on the Mount, their response seemingly is one of great astonishment. They're blown away by what Jesus has said. Now, I will tell you that every good preacher desires for people to be astonished by their teaching. And sadly, none of us are like Jesus, that we can astonish people in the way that Jesus did. But what was it? that astonished people with regards to Jesus' teaching. Now it says, notice verse 29, it says that he astonished them because he spoke with authority unlike the scribes that the people had. Now, right away, it begs the question, wait a minute, the scribes and the teachers of the law, weren't they authority figures? Weren't they those men who were always telling people what they could and couldn't do? Always giving a a litany, if you will, of regulations? Hadn't they spoken with authority? What was it that made Jesus' teaching something different that caused the crowd uh, to be taken back? The answer is this. Jesus' authority is most clearly seen and not the list of do's and don'ts that the Pharisees and chief priests were always standing behind. But Jesus spoke with authority because Jesus spoke as a real individual. What I mean by that is Jesus, and you're going to see this over and over again, 
is completely transparent. There's, there's a realness to Jesus. There's no pretense. There's no fakery. There's no hypocrisy. There's no hidden motives to Jesus' teaching. There's no hidden agendas. And what we learn about Jesus is that he believed what he taught and he lived all that he was in line with the will of God. And what that means is he was a preacher who not only saw fit to teach certain things, but to live them. And how refreshing that was in Jesus' day. He was real with the people. And so when we read and, and hear his words, we see that he wasn't just excellent in his exposition of what he was articulating, the, the truths, but he served as an example for them. And he, his teaching created a desire for each listener to experience what he was talking about. When Jesus says, blessed are the pure uh, in heart, for they will see God, uh, the listeners, those who had given their life uh, to Christ and his teachings, no doubt said, I want to know how to do that. I want that, Jesus. I want to see God in a way that I'm not seeing him now. And because of that, the sermon that we are studying is 100% truth. It's 100% Jesus. It's unmixed and uncontaminated. And yet, one of our greatest struggles as followers of Jesus Christ, as real as Jesus is, I mean, he doesn't fake his way through this, he doesn't play games with people, and yet we as Christians perpetually find ourselves playing games with God and with one another. We are never transparent, we're never real about our sins and our struggles, our hurts and our pains, we just keep those things behind masks. Now, if you say, well, that's not true, Tim, go to a small group sometime and, and enjoy the coffee and, and fellowship and, and get down to, to prayer time or in the study and have someone open up about their sin. Have someone open up about their struggles and you will hear a pin drop. You will see people's jaws go to the floor. Why? Because people don't talk that way. We have come to realize that as Christians, the way you make it through the Christian life is to not be transparent. And it's so odd because we all recognize we're sinners. We just don't want to tell anybody what our sins are. And so what begins to happen is we're not real with one another. And we have this dilemma. We have this issue. We're all striving for the same thing. Hopefully that's purity. All of us are failing miserably in it. But you would never know from us because the last thing we want to do is share it with one another. And we wonder why we have all kinds of issues with one another. We have all kinds of issues with our spouses and with our kids. And the Bible makes it clear that this game of masks and hiding of ourselves began in the Garden of Eden. Before and, and uh, before uh, sin entered the world, and not to be trite, not to be funny, but man and woman danced around naked in front of their God and in front of each other. There was nothing to hide. There was nothing to be shamed about. There was nothing that kept uh, the relationship from being uh, hurt in any way. And the second sin enters the world, man goes running for the trees to get away from God, and man and woman start covering themselves up because they are filled with shame, and they want to mask their shame with concealment. And as Christians, so many of us are a people that want to conceal our sin, conceal our hurts, conceal our pains, instead of being real and honest with the God who already knows our issues and our struggles, and to be real and honest with those around us. At the heart of this battle is Jesus now coming in and saying, I want you to be pure in heart. And in this purity of heart, 
strikes at the very issue of us as believers not being real with one another and being real with our God. And so we need to look at four things this morning that are going to help us to be real this morning. And the first one is we need to understand the concept behind the word. What does this word purity mean? Right away, many of us will think we understand the word. And Tim, I've been a Christian. I know what purity is. We don't need to belabor it. So let's get out early. It's a nice day. We don't have to talk about it. Let me tell you something. I didn't understand this idea of purity until I spent some time anew studying this last week. This word purity is not a simple cut and dry purity, but it has a deep and profound concept within it that it would do us well to become acquainted with. This term pure is the Greek word from which we get our English word catharsis from. Catharsis literally is the cleansing of the mind and of emotions. And scholars suggest that this word basically has two meanings. The first one is well known, the second one not so well. The first one, the idea of purity is to have something free from contamination. You're like, Tim, yep, I got that, that's easy. We don't want uh, our pure things to have anything in them. Now notice this word speaks of purity that comes as a result of cleansing or cleaning something from dirt, filth, and contamination. It was used three different ways. It was used when speaking of metals that were refined under a fire to remove all impurities from it. In the household sense of the term, it was spoken of dirty laundry that had been washed clean. In the agricultural world, it spoke of wheat that had been sifted where the pure wheat was, uh, I'm sorry, the pure wheat was set apart from the chaff and and tares of the wheat uh, that uh, would keep it from being pure. And so here we have this idea of purity, to be like God. What Jesus is saying is, I want you to be pure just as I am pure. Jesus will later say in this uh, text that we are called to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. And so there's a high standard, and notice that it isn't just a high standard for a, a certain time, but notice he says, I want you to be pure in heart. And the idea here is it's anchored in the idea that our heart is the mainframe or motherboard of all that we do. And so what Jesus is saying is, your purity is not to just be seen on Sunday, and then you can do whatever you want Saturday or Monday through Saturday. It's not just to be seen when you're around Christians, but to be around all people. It isn't just so that you can put it on and, and take it off. Your purity is to be seen in all that you do. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way. Blessed are those who are pure. Not only on the surface, but in the center of their being, and at the source of every activity. Now just rewind this last week and ask the question, are you pure in heart this morning? Is everything that you're a part of, not only on the surface, but to the very center of who you are, pure? Is every source of every activity Every decision you make, every word that you say, every action that is lived out, is it saturated with purity? As followers of Jesus Christ, we are called to pursue this kind of purity. And why? Why are we called to pursue such a purity? David tells us in Psalm 24, 3 and 4. The only way that you and I will experience God is when we pursue purity. You can't have God and be impure. It would be like me saying, 
I want a great relationship with Amanda, but I need to make sure I've got some girlfriends on the side. I will never, and I make sure you know this, I'll never have fellowship with Amanda if there's girlfriends on the side. I may not be alive, okay? And what we begin to think that we can do is that we believe that we can have a relationship with God, but on the, inside the heart, we have all these other mistresses and all these other things going on in our lives. And God says this purity has to be a part of your life if you are going to experience God. Psalm 24, 3 and 4. David asked the question, who can enter into the fellowship of the Almighty? There's his question. Who can experience God? Who can see God? And David answers, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Now notice, this is a necessity for fellowship, but notice it goes on to another thing. So we get the free from contamination, but being pure also means being fully consistent. Being fully consistent. Write that down in your outlines this morning. This word purity refers to something that is unmixed, as having no double allegiance. Warren Wearsby writes that the basic idea here, when Jesus speaks of purity is that of integrity, speaking of a singleness of heart, as opposed to any kind of duplicity or a divided heart. Jesus would speak of this purity in Matthew 6.33 when he says, you and I cannot serve two masters. We're either going to be devoted to one or despise the other. And what Jesus is telling us is, our purity is seen in a single-hearted devotion for God. Now, James tells us that when we start playing this game of playing both sides of the fence, if you will, we, James tells us that we become double-minded. And that double-minded people are unstable in all our ways. And some of us this morning are unstable. We're unstable because on one, at one moment we choose God. And we choose God because in the moment it's convenient, it's right, we're moved in our spirits to do so, and we get all excited about God. And then we we leave that setting of our excitement and our our pursuit of God, and, and the things of the world come in. That TV show sure sounds funny. Those friends that that you hang out that have no uh, real good uh, um, connections with, and, and you're not you're not helping them in their walk closer to God. You're they're pulling you down and. And you're sitting there, but they're fun to be around. And those things that we're looking at on the TV and on the internet and in magazines and all of that, those things are drawing us, and, and yet we want to follow God. God says you can't love both things. You're going to despise one and love the other. And, and as a result of that, you need to make a choice. And some of us this morning need to make a choice. We need to make a choice on whom we are going to serve. David once again helps us out in Psalm 15 where he tells us how we can pursue God and what that means. In Psalm 15 verses 1 through 5 it says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Notice, the ones who get to experience God, David says in verse 2, are the ones who walk blamelessly and do what is right, who speak truth in their hearts. Do not slander with their tongues, who do no evil to their neighbor, who take no, up no reproach against their friends, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, and who honors those who fear 
the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall not be moved. And so the idea here is once we pursue a life that is free from the contaminations of this world and our sin and becomes fully consistent in our allegiance to God, we are going to do something. Attitude will dictate action. And so if you want to know this morning, am I pursuing purity? Look at your actions, and are your actions consistent with that of a pure life? And if they're not, don't just blame the actions, but blame the attitude that goes behind it. Now notice, Jesus says, we'll be blessed. How in the world are we blessed? Let's put those two definitions together, and let's understand what purity is. Write this down somewhere. I'll help us with this. It says, blessed is the person. What kind of person? Jesus is saying the person is blessed who has been fully cleansed in character by Christ. Who has been fully cleansed in character by Christ. That's that no contamination thing. So that the way he or she looks in public, the way he or she looks in public, is the same way he or she is in private. Because we have been cleansed by Christ himself, we live so differently that the way that we look in public is no different than the way we look in private. Someone has once said, and I don't know who it was, but character is what you are when no one is looking. What kind of character do you have this morning? Are you the same way today that you will be tomorrow? Are you the same way around unbelievers as you are around us today? Are you the same way in the sanctuary as you are in your media room and what you're watching what is entertaining you? You see, in a nutshell, what, what Jesus is telling us is, is we need to be single-minded in our commitment because we have been made inwardly pure. Because Jesus has saved us and he has made us pure on his account, the gratitude of the believer must be to live like Christ every moment of the day, no matter who's around or what's taking place. Now, as we look at that and say, okay, that, that's a good concept, we, we understand it, notice that Jesus wasn't the only one who was speaking about purity. I want you to know that during Jesus' days, purity was a hot topic. That when Jesus said, blessed are the pure, many people said, all right, yeah, yeah, this is what we're talking about. This is what's going on. In the first century in Palestine, purity was a big thing. Everybody was trying to understand what does it mean to be pure. But notice that what Jesus shares is so different from what I would like to call the counterfeits of purity that were going on. You see, Jesus was preaching the hot-button issue of the day. How does one become pure? And while there was cohesion on the theme of purity, Jesus knocks the socks off of the people because his purity and the way to it was very different than that which was being um, shared by others. Notice and write these down. Notice the Pharisees had a way of, of, of speaking of purity. 
When the Pharisees spoke of purity, their beatitude would sound like this. Blessed are the outwardly clean, for they shall see God. You see, these men believed that it was the job of God followers to make themselves clean by doing certain things. Some of them were God-given and good, while others were man-made and, and foolish. The pursuit of purity then, therefore, allowed us as pure people to judge others. And why? I've made myself pure. Why haven't you? Look at all that I've done. Why can't you do the same thing? And so the Pharisees were notorious judgers of people. Look at me. Look at how clean I am. And look how dirty you are. And that is all the time why we see them bringing dirty men and women uh, to the forefront. Because they themselves had made themselves clean, and now they could judge others as a result of it. Jesus has a word for them, and he says in Matthew 23, verses 25 and 26, that the purity of the Pharisees was like cleaning the inside of a cup while leaving the outside fully dirty. I'm sorry, cleaning the outside of a cup, my bad. Cleaning the outside of a cup, leaving the inside completely dirty. You see, we would never drink out of a cup that looks real clean on the outside, all the while has all kinds of terrible, gross, and sick things on the inside. But that was the Pharisees' religion. Clean the outside, make sure everybody sees a clean outside, and who cares if you're rotten in the core uh, on the end. And some of us right now have bought into that kind of pharisaical type of living. And so Monday through Saturday, we're filled with all types of debauchery and all types of sin. But just as long as when I show up at church, I'm all cleaned up, everything's okay. Just as long as I have enough Christianese that I can speak the language of a sanctified individual, I'll be okay. And then once I'm done, I can enjoy the things of God and then I can run to the things of the week that lead me to sin and debauchery. And some of us are living in that perpetual cycle like that. And let me tell you something. You've bought into the Pharisees' idea and counterfeit idea, I might add, of purity. But they weren't the only ones who were pitching this purity. There were also the zealots. And the zealots were people who would have put the beatitude like this. Blessed are those who pursue purity in government and country. These thought that the way to purity was found in a nation that would give tacit acknowledgement to God. They saw the pinnacle of purity being a nation that was ruled by the right, pure people passing right and pure laws. Now, if you think that we are looking at something that's in a bubble, you are terribly mistaken. There are Pharisees in our day, and I would say there are Pharisees within our church, and I will tell you there are zealots in our church and in our midst as well. Because some of us have this idea that the way that purity is found is by changing Washington, D.C. That we have this idea that if we clean up Washington and all the politicians and we start passing right laws, 
then, then purity will come. And, and the more pure our nation comes, the more pure we become. Let me tell you something. Some of us think that, that it would be a grand thing for us to plaster the Ten Commandments all over every billboard and at every school and every town hall and, and to put that there and to have people who don't acknowledge God to, to open their days in school with prayer. Let me tell you something. That does not make a nation pure. It doesn't. Are those things that make us feel better as Christians? Yeah. But that doesn't make us pure. What makes a nation pure is when God strikes at the heart of a nation and the heart of the people of that nation that humbles them because of their sin and they see God as pure and righteous and good and they bow the knee and they exalt Jesus as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so be careful that you don't start parading yourself and putting yourself under the teaching of pundits and radio talking heads and forget that the way to purity is not through, and I don't mean to to strike names of people, but Rush Limbaugh and Glenn Beck, as knowledgeable as they may be, but it's to put ourselves under the purity of Jesus Christ. We can't be zealots who think purity comes by us changing the nation around us. Jesus made it clear that the only way and the only kingdom that we are to pursue is not a kingdom of the United States of America, but to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. A synonym for purity. That's what we are to pursue. That is what we are to seek. And when we seek that, God says, and all these other things shall be added unto you. People will begin to start following God, and that's what we need to pursue. So notice Pharisees, zealots. Notice the next one was the Essenes. And the Essenes were were people who found purity. And they said, we found it, and we've got it, and the way that you find purity is by isolating yourself from all the things of this world. And so they were totally at odds with the zealots because the zealots wanted to engage uh, the culture all a bit in an odd way. But the Essenes, they, they said, you know what? The way you find purity is to rid yourself of all involvement with the world and to isolate yourself. And it started out that they just isolated themselves from people and from those that didn't believe the same way they did to then, even during Jesus' time, they started building communes. They would go outside of the major cities and that and find a place where nobody was at and they would commune together and they would worship together and they said, this is the way that you find purity. You gotta get up, you gotta leave your home, you gotta leave your family and you gotta come and just you and some other devoted worshipers, you will find purity together when you get away from the world. And some of us right now have found ourselves where we have, and maybe we haven't left and gone into communal living, but but there's real no difference in the way that we live. We're so isolated from the world. Well, the world's an impure place. And and because the world's an impure place, if I engage the world, if I'm a part of the world, then I will become impure. And so I'm going to stay away from the world. I'm going to stay away from all of that. And I'm just going to do my thing. and, And I'll hang out with Christians. And I'll go to worship. And I'll do all of that. But when it comes to my neighbor, when it comes to outside influences within the world, I am, I'm totally and utterly going to set myself apart from that. Here's the problem. Jesus says that the world will see purity as you and I are salt and light in the world. And here's the thing about those two things, and we will talk about that in the weeks to come, but neither salt nor light work from far away. 
We cannot isolate ourselves from it. The Bible says that we are to be in the world. That means we're in, we're in there. Uh, the idea there is we're submerged into it. We, we're there, it's all around us. We're in it, we're just not of it. And some of us are, some of us are doing one of two things. We're in the world and we're of the world. That's not what I'm talking about. Nor are we to be out of the world and not of the world. We are to be in it but we're not to have bought into its way of life. We are to act as salt and light, to be different. And when we do that, people will see purity as they see us living like Jesus. Notice, Jesus did not save us from afar. Jesus was not a light from afar, but Jesus made his dwelling among us. And he, in, in, in our terminology, the idea is that he made his dwelling, he, he pitched his tent among us. He made his dwelling with us. And as a result of that, we can know and we can recognize that if Jesus did that, and that's how he saved individuals, that's how we'll be a part of the saving of those around us. Now here's the problem. All of those are counterfeits. And here's the problem. All of them start with where all man-made religion does. I can pursue purity on my own. I can get it my own way. And every man-made religion, and even within the Christian religion, there are uh, faiths or denominations that will say, well, all you got to do is work hard enough, and if you work hard enough, then you'll be pure. And so we find people that just keep working and working and working, and they never get anywhere. Where's that seeing of God? Where's that experiencing of God? And it's found wanting. And the question that we need, or the thing that we need to understand this morning is there is a challenge that we face. If we are going to pursue purity, we have to understand there's a challenge before us. When we hear blessed are the pure in heart, we right away think, well, how can I get it? And the answer is you can't. You cannot get purity on your own. Oh, you can try, and people try and try and try, but you will never get it on your own. You see, the reason why is we've got a heart condition. Our heart has a problem, and it's a challenge in and of ourselves that is far too great for us to jump over. You see, the Bible tells us two things about our heart. In Jeremiah 17, 9, It's as if we sit down into the doctor's chair and Jesus, the great physician, comes and he looks at our heart and he says two things about our heart. Write these down. He says, your heart is a con artist. Why? Because Jesus, or God says, the heart is deceitfully sick. We'll get to that in a moment. And notice he goes on and he says, the second diagnosis I want you to know is that it's beyond cure. You're in trouble. There's no remedy in this world for that. And herein lies the problem. You're so sick that you're dead. You're a dead man walking, and your heart tells you you're not. Because the heart is deceitfully sick. It deceives us into thinking that it's okay. You see, we sin, and what does the heart tell us? The heart tells us, well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. Oh yeah, I, I left my wife and I've left my kids and I've, I've, I've stolen and I've cheated and I've told lies and I've done this and I've done that. But, but, and we always default to, and I, I'm not as bad as Hitler. 
I wonder who Hitler was talking about when he was telling people, I wasn't, I'm not as bad as Genghis Khan, okay? And so we go to the worst possible person, and we begin to, our heart says, well, I'm not as bad as them. And some of us don't even have to go as far as Hitler, we just got to look down the, the pew. Well, I'm not as bad as, you know, who's sitting over there. He's a lot worse than I am, so I'm okay, and, and they're not. The heart is deceitfully sick. It's beyond cure. Can I tell you something? And I, my heart is grieved at churches that tell people that they're okay when they're not. And if you came to be encouraged this morning, you'll get the truth, but I'm not sure if you are encouraged by the things that will make your heart feel good, you came to the wrong place today. Because the Bible tells us, and I just want you to listen, and I don't want you to turn it off. Amanda said you gave a lot of scripture in the first service, and I wondered, did people turn it off? Gosh, I hope they did it, because this is the medicine that will save your life. This will be, and it's not my words, but I want you to notice what the Bible says about your heart, the challenge of purity in your heart. Notice we've had it all our lives because sin came into the world, Romans 5, 12, through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all have sinned. By the one man's, that's Adam's disobedience, the many, that's us, were made sinners. Therefore, Romans 3.23 says, we're all sin, we're all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 6.36 says, there is no one who does not sin. Isaiah 53.6 tells us, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Micah 7.2-4 says that there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each one hunts the other with a net. Their hands are what is, on what is evil, to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe. The great man utters the evil desires of his soul, thus they weave it together. Even the best of them is like a briar. The, upmo- the most upright of them is a thorn hedge. 1 John 1.8 says, Therefore then, if we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And if we say that we have not sinned, listen to what John says. We make God out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. But are you telling me, even deep down inside, Tim, that I'm a sinner? The scriptures say in Mark 7, 21 and through 23, from within... And out of the heart of the man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Psalm 5, 9 says that that there is no truth in our mouth. Even the inmost self is destructive. Our mouths are open graves. We flatter ourselves with our tongues. Titus 1, 15 and 16 says, To the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. How about those little ones that we have that are so cute? 
Ecclesiastes 9.3, also the hearts of their children. The children of men are full of evil and, their mad, and the madness in their hearts while they live. And after they live, they shall go on to be with the dead. Romans 1.28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to a debased mind to do what they ought not be done. And they were foolish. Genesis 6, 5 says that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was so great in the earth that every inclination and intention and thoughts of his heart were to do evil continually. John 8, 34 says, Everyone, truly, truly, I say to everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Titus 3, 3 says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, being hated by others and hating one another. Galatians 4, 8 says, Formerly, we did, when we did not know God, we were enslaved, just as those uh, who by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather been known by God, how can you turn your back to the weak and worthless and elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Romans 1, 24 through 27 says, God gave us up into the lust of our, our hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of our bodies among themselves because we exchanged the truth of God for a lie and served creatures instead of the Creator who is to be blessed forever. We who, like the rest, Ephesians 2, 3 says, lived in passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature's children of rest like, the man, like mankind. Proverbs 21, 10, the soul of the wicked desires only evil. And Jesus says about all of this, every one of us, apart from Christ, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. You say, wow, that's a lot on sin. That's 10% of what the Bible says about our hearts. And so if you've walked in here to say, well, you know what? I'm not as bad as I could be. Baloney, hogwash to the very core of who we are. We are sinners. Now, we may not live out all that sin because of the common grace of God, but we are sinners. And here's the problem. Apart from the almighty grace and mercy of God, none of us will see him. Because we're all impure. We're all impure. And so what do we need to know and what do we need to recognize? We need to get real with ourselves, take off the mask, and acknowledge I am a sinner and I'm in deep trouble. Because if I want to see God, i got to get something that I don't have. And what we need to recognize is that is the gospel. We who were sinners, who were lost in our trespasses and sin, who had no chance of ever being pure, that Jesus Christ made a decision to come and be righteousness on our behalf. By dying on the cross, he shed his blood, that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God. And what that means is the greatest exchange. We exchange our impurity for his purity. And because of that, we have fellowship with God Almighty. But how do we get there? We bathe ourselves in the grace and mercy of God. And it is seen in a biblical plan. And let me close with this. There is a channel, a plan towards purity. And it begins out of a passage, an Old Testament passage. Turn for a moment. We'll close with this. Psalm 51. Psalm 51, I think it's very important that if we want a desire or desire a heart that is pure, then we need to go to a man who had a heart after God's. And he wasn't a perfect man. 
In Psalm 51, if you don't have a Bible, page 474, David gives this psalm when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone to sleep and commit adultery with Bathsheba. And so this is not a very pure time in David's life. And notice there are some things that I want you to see. Notice the honesty that David has in his pursuit of purity. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. How do we get purity? When we honestly assess who we are. Have you ever honestly assessed that I am a sinner in need of God's grace? Are you a believer today who continually recognizes that you are a sinner and you are being showered the grace of God each and every day? David got it. I've blown it, God. I've sinned against you and you alone, and I've got a problem. He was honest about his sin. Notice that honesty led to humility. Notice in verse 6, But behold, you delight in truth and in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So purge me with hyssop so I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear the joys, uh, joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Let's stop there. Notice the honesty. The honesty that says, I'm a sinner, you're great. I'm filthy, you're clean. I'm impure, you're pure. So it begins with an honest assessment of who you are. And then as you see who you are in the picture, you get down on your knees and say, God, I'm filthy. I'm filthy. There's nothing. Why would you even put your love and affection on me? I don't understand it, but I'm willing to humble myself. And notice that humility and that honesty will lead to a hunger. Notice the hunger. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He's hungry for a pure heart. And and notice this pure heart is not for a one-time thing. Just don't forgive me for my one sin, but restore to me the joy of salvation, verse 12, and uphold me with a willing spirit. So I may teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. He goes on, he says, that my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord, open my lips and my mouth so that they can declare your praise. Here's the idea. David is saying, cleanse me so that I can go to everyone else and tell them I was impure and Christ made me clean. And I want to tell everybody I can about that. Because a pure heart will always lead to us sharing that purity with others. And notice when we are honest and humble and hungry for the right things of God, it is there that Jesus says, we shall see God. And every believer should desire to see God. And this is what Jesus says, the more focused our hearts are on him, the more our lives are centered around his will and word, you and I will be freed from the distractions of this world and the temptations of sin. As our hearts grow purer, we will see more clearly, listen to me, when we pursue purity, we will see more clearly how the heavens and creation declare the glory of the risen Lord. 
We'll become more intent on hearing of his precepts and his words that give us life. When we pursue purity, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says we will be transformed into Christ's likeness. But even that isn't the sum total of all that seeing God means. Because for the pure at heart, when we pursue purity, the Bible says there's a vision that no eye has seen, that no ear has heard, that God has prepared for those whom he loves. And here's the thing, one day, one day we will see him face to face. Ken Hughes says this, that in the split second of this kind of seeing, the believer will experience more joy than the sum total of the accumulated joys in this long life. In a split second. Our brother Clarence experienced that this week. Greater joy than all those accumulated in his entire life. It is then, listen to me brothers and sisters, that we will behold the dazzling blaze of his being that has always been and always will be the fascination of the angels. And so both scripture and reason compel us to understand that seeing God will be the single greatest event of our external existence and it is only for those who are pure in hearts. Oh, what a happy day it will be, brothers and sisters, when we with all the saints who have gone before us will see God. And on that great and glorious day, we will rise and we will see God and we shall be with him forever. So that begs the question this morning. Have you experienced and are you experiencing a purity of heart? An unmixed devotion to God alone. Not that we can achieve this on our own, but as we pursue God in humility, that we will be made pure. Is that on your radar this week? To pursue God and the purity that he has so that we might be like him and one day be changed and spend eternity with him. Let's pray. Lord, I pray the words of John, 1 John 3, 2 and 3. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when Jesus appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who hopes in Jesus purifies himself as Jesus is pure. Father God, I pray that that scripture would be our life verse this week. That we would leave this place knowing we are God's children and knowing that not our, full, our salvation has not been fully realized yet but that on that great and glorious day when we see you in the clouds, that we will be like you. And Lord, I pray that that would be our desire because with that hope comes a desire to be pure. And so Lord, whatever is challenging that purity this week in our own lives, that we would push it away and pursue and seek first your righteousness and your purity knowing that when we turn away from the lusts of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, that it is then and only then that we will truly experience you and see you in this life and in the life to come. 
Oh God, we want to see you. But Lord, while the spirit may be willing, the flesh is weak. So encourage our hearts, Lord. Strengthen our feeble knees that we may be ready to take on a week of temptation and a week of struggle so that we may all the while in our struggle find victory in Christ Jesus. That we may experience you, that we may see you and all that you are. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Lord, we want to see you this week, so make us pure. And give us a heart to pursue that purity, so that we may honor and glorify you in all that we say and do. In Christ's name, we give it all. In Jesus, amen.